Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. This podcast is a new feature. I'm calling it a Voice of Insurance solo. And what it is is really an editorial in podcast form. Let me know what you think. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in The Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. So with, with the coronavirus firmly in the global ascendancy, here's a question that I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of weeks. Is insurance going to get punished by governments and judiciaries for the systemic market failures exposed by COVID-19? And if so, what can we do about it? First, let's have a look at the scores for global PNC insurance for coronavirus. On the asset side of the balance sheets, we're almost certainly okay. Equities may be toast, but our exposure has been restricted by regulation. In fixed income, Uh, We stopped investing in weird collateralised debt obligations and other exotica a long time ago and stuck to far more conventional instruments. Our sovereign debt is going to be fine unless we're overexposed to the usual suspects in southern Europe and the emerging markets. The bigger worry is possibly the major allocation to corporate debt. That's often around 50% of insurer assets. But the asset quality is good. And central bank intervention to buy these assets and implied state guarantees standing behind a lot of future issuance uh, is going to give us a lot of comfort. Of course, there are always going to be outliers, just like in any global financial crisis. But of course, these will be punished for their sins by the markets. But like back then, I think the probability of individual company failure or impairment is relatively low. Now, on the risk side of the balance sheet, on paper, there's very little to worry about. The worst case scenario for uh, in contingency, that would include uh, the loss of the Summer Olympics, would be that we're producing a global loss that is far less than a small to medium-sized US landfalling hurricane, let's say single-digit billions of dollars. There's exposure in trade credit, surety and financial guarantees. But this is less of a worry now, now that major central bank and government financial supports are being formulated across G7 economies to try and stave off corporate bankruptcies. There's, of course, uh, political risk exposure. But again, this is a specialist cover and is manageable in a global industry context. There will be negative effects inevitably on medical malpractice, life and health and workers' comp. And these will vary on how well individual health systems cope. With stocks down sharply, there will be the usual class actions that might be a nuisance to DNO underwriters. But with financial markets crashing in unison, causation is going to be almost impossible to prove. Now, one potential downside that hasn't really been discussed much uh, by many people is with the demand for some goods going through the roof, there's a massive increase in, in exposure for uncompetitive corporate behaviour and price gouging. I think it's really important to say now that how companies behave right now will be put under enormous scrutiny when all of this is over. The wrath of governments and public opinion will be unleashed on anyone who thought a global tragedy was an opportunity to produce excess profits. Some behaviour like marking up basic food, hygiene and medical supplies is just plain wrong. 
But there are some other behaviours that are less obvious and more subtle. For example, there's a major difference in behaviour in how some travel companies are treating refunds of non-refundable tickets for trips that the companies they themselves have cancelled. Now think of flights and train and ferry trips. Some operators are giving vouchers and others are saying you can rebook for no fee. The trouble is that the ones that are making customers rebook are using pricing surge algorithms that make the cost of rebook trips much more expensive than the ones they were replacing. Sometimes by many multiples, the difference could be many billions. Now, I know which type of company I would rather be insuring if I were a DNO underwriter. But maybe that kind of thing is a hedge you win, uh, tails I lose kind of scenario. Because let's face it, which, which scenario is worse? You could have company A, which is really kind to customers and then goes bust. If that happens, I'll get a side A claim as a DNO underwriter. But if company B is mean to its customers and survives, but then subsequently gets sued by a righteous attorney general and has its case tried in the court of public opinion, then I'll almost certainly get it in the neck anyway. I think that just completes the old saying that DNO is the ultimate all risk cover. But then again, it's worth remembering what happened in the global financial crisis. The final claims were nowhere near as bad as we thought they would be at the time. I mean, we'd had uh, financial institutions collapsing left, right and centre. As I said before, when whole markets fall in unison, it's really hard to prove whose fault it actually was. Now, things like travel repatriation exposure is also manageable because very little of it includes full communicable disease cover. Other stuff is more operational. Um, let's look at aviation, for example. Uh, it's going to lose a lot of premium uh, as planes are grounded. So its expense ratio is going to look pretty horrid in coming quarters as the volumes crater. But then in return, it won't have any exposure to air crashes. Uh, and so the loss ratio is going to plummet along with it. Of course, aviation underwriters will have to buy property cat cover for the vast new accumulations of values they've, uh, they've found uh, now sitting on the tarmac or in the hangars. But this is cheap. And so let's say the aviation problem is also pretty manageable. We'll be seeing, I would say, similar effects in energy and any other sectors that have seen their demand evaporate. One other big difference between today and the last global financial crisis is that we as an industry have since got into mortgage insurance and reinsurance as banks retreated from that kind of risk. Again, I mean, that's a worry, but again, it's also manageable. For again, for those same fiscal and monetary interventions I mentioned earlier, they're likely to come to our aid here and avoid extreme default rates. Uh, and secondly, this is a diversifying line. It's not a core line. So again, we're not exposing a huge amount of our capital to this. Let's also remember, talking about capital, that the industry is better capitalised than it has ever been. It's certainly better capitalised than it was going into the last crisis. So my gut, and that of all the smart people I talk to, is that whilst we're going to take a hit on our book values as markets crash, and we're also going to be tested on the risk side, this is nothing we can't handle. Suffice to say, we really could do without a bad second half of the year for natural catastrophes. But at the moment, this is looking like more of an earnings event than a capital one. So far, so good. But now for the big one and the point I alluded to at the beginning. Every business in the real economy that is not in the food sector is being hit hard. But once again, business interruption almost never covers communicable disease. And even when it does, some of this cover is incredibly limited. Some policies only cover named diseases. And since COVID-19 was only named in January, exposure is so minuscule as to be immaterial. So to summarise, currently we're very solvent and we're definitely in business. 
our assets are not going to be majorly impaired, and our claims are going to be manageable. Well, sometimes it's better to lose than to win. Why do I say this? This is because insurance doesn't live in a bubble. It lives as part of a wider society and can only function in harmony with it. There's a social contract. When everyone is losing, being a relative winner doesn't actually help very much. When you have the big corporates, the banks and governments all scrambling around for cash, if you're the last one in the room with a relatively full wallet, you're certainly going to be raided. This is either going to happen directly by governments legislating and confiscating, or it's going to happen indirectly by litigation that reinterprets cover long after the event. Whether that is fair or not is beside the point. It's just the way it is. Business interruption is the trillion dollar question and could cause a fundamental shift in the way we cover pandemic disease. We didn't cover it, and that's now a problem. We can see this in potential after-the-event legislation and regulation in the US and coverage disputes emerging around the world as clients feel they should be covered even though their policies say they aren't. If we have the most cash left of any sector, there's a reasonable chance that we will be co-opted into subsidising part of the final bill. We've done this before with terrorism, asbestos and pollution. We're absolutely right to say it wasn't our fault. In fact, we could have done very little else about this. And this is because we're forgetting a fundamental point if we, if we don't remind ourselves that pandemic disease is a systemic risk and is therefore uninsurable in the conventional sense. You know, we all know that pro property is insurable against flood, fire and even terrorism because whole continents do not burn, flood or explode at once and aggregation and PMLs are relatively easily estimated. This means we can ensure lots of limit for relatively little premium as only small percentages of overall limit are exposed to any given event, and we can be capital efficient. It's ironic that while we were worrying about emerging systemic risks like cyber attacks and computer viruses, it would be a real-world virus that would prove to be the biggest systemic challenges in our careers. But the point is that if every business interruption included total non-damage cover for all risks of shutdown, no insurer would have been allowed to operate, and rightly so. Regulators wouldn't allow us to run an almost unlimited and unquantifiable exposure, and neither would rating agencies. We'd all be unlicensed, and we'd all be unrated, and, and probably some of us would be in jail, probably rightly so. If full business interruption cover were given universally, all insurers would today be insolvent, with COVID-19 business interruption losses dwarfing their asset bases. There is only so much capacity we can allow to be exposed to any single event. The solution will likely therefore have to be a partial one. I think we're going to make a contribution for this loss in one way or another. And then in return, a new deal may come about, so that total non-damage business interruption cover can be made more widely available. It will need the insureds, the insurance industry, and then governments to work together. Shutting down whole economies has been shown to be the only effective loss mitigation strategy against pan pandemics that we currently have. For example, if Wuhan had shut down at the first signs of trouble, the virus may have been contained and a global pandemic avoided, with a consequent huge saving in lives and economic cost. The problem is that there was no mechanism by which Wuhan or China 
could do this without being penalised or effectively sacrificing itself for the common good. We need such a mechanism, and it may actually be possible to deliver one. Remember, we have to start from the economic fact that today, global pandemic is systemic and almost uninsurable. So this means that clients, insureds, will have to take a big uninsured proportion, say at least 20% coinsurance, like the kind of coinsurance levels that you get in hard markets in severe hurricane-exposed property. Then insurance insurers will have to form major pools. This is not going to be something we can compete over in any meaningful sense. We won't want to compete to add exposure that we can't mitigate. Then these pandemic re-pools will have to be state-backed. And then the state-backed pools will have to cooperate and pool again at a worldwide level. Insurance-linked securities could also play a major role here, at both an individual state and global level. The state-backed pandemic reinsurers could issue pandemic bonds to spread the risk far and wide. But loss mitigation and prevention should also be a key part of the structure we create. That's particularly because it's not a strictly insurable risk. So for this reason, a percentage of the pandemic re-premiums should go to medical research, disease monitoring and testing. It should also marshal the human resources and stockpile the equipment that may be required to effectively combat a pandemic. I'm thinking about ventilators, which are clearly in a global shortage right now. Researching most communicable diseases is just not a profitable proposition for drug companies, so it is left to governments. As we know, governments that are elected every four or five years have other priorities than protecting us from likely one in a hundred year events. So a share of pool premiums could be used to fund this expensive research and rapid reaction resource. Most of the time, this resource is going to seem like an inefficient burden and effectively dead money. But if its job is to identify future threats and formulate accelerated vaccine development, we may find that we can predict which viruses are going to be problematic and develop pre-event strategies against them on a precautionary basis, thereby preventing or mitigating disasters. Under this system, outbreaks of new disease would be swiftly reported, and the full machinery and global resource would descend rapidly on the affected area, testing and looking to develop treatments and vaccines almost immediately. Individual states would be able to rely on these reinsurance pools to respond quickly and efficiently when they need to shut down. This would remove the disincentive they currently have to act quickly in the common good. We would be paying places to shut down to protect all of us. Yes, there is a risk of fund exhaustion, but the more mitigation the pools and their medical institutes provide, the less likely this becomes over time, particularly if the pandemic funds are protected from raids on their surplus by hard-up governments. If we could go a decade or two loss-free, we could build a largely self-sustaining endowment that lives off investment income and then we could possibly reduce premium levels for original insureds. By pooling these resources at a global level, we could provide better global protection. It's not perfect, but a massive improvement on the non-existent mechanism that we have in place today. Of course, that is not to say that any of this is actually likely to happen. I expect that within a few years we will forget and move on, because setting up such a mechanism will be too difficult politically. For example, Poorer countries would have to get an almost free ride, 
and that may not be palatable to some. But when that argument comes up, we should remember the indelible lesson of this pandemic. If just one place has no protection, then no one has any real protection, however good their medical and insurance systems may be. That was the first Voice of Insurance solo podcast. I hope you found it interesting and thought-provoking. Please get in touch to let me know what you think at mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thanks for listening. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>